Hello and welcome to the Road to Adepec series by Energy Voice, brought to you by Adepec 2023, the world's largest energy exhibition and conference. From October the 2nd to the 5th, under the theme of decarbonising faster together, Adepec will gather leaders and innovators from across the energy ecosystem and beyond to accelerate the path to a lower carbon future. The event is to attract more than 160,000 attendees and 2,200 exhibiting companies. And the conference programme will see 1,600 speakers across 350 sessions share their perspectives on the tangible actions and solutions needed to address the biggest climate and energy issues we face today. I'm Ed Reed, an editor at Energy Voice, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Ed Crooks, Vice Chair Americas at Wood Mackenzie, and Thomas Storch, Managing Director at Affinity Partners, and previously Deputy Director at the US National Economic Council for International Economic Affairs. The topic today is the role of policy and climate finance in the road to net zero. The energy transition is going to require substantial investment, with Irina recently suggesting a sum of $37 trillion by 2030. To get there though, what role will the traditional energy sector play in delivering that needed change? Listening to environmental protesters, I often get the sense that they object wholly to the role of capitalism in the energy transition, even though there's little clarity about how to otherwise deliver such a major spending programme. At Adepec, I'm sure there's going to be substantial interest in the role of finance and how it can deliver these changes. I'm therefore extremely grateful for Ed and Thomas. Ed. To what extent do you think the traditional oil and gas industry can still access financing? Certainly, the oil and gas industry is able to access finance at the moment, despite a great deal of uh, noise and conversation around can't invest in oil and gas anymore because of the energy transition. Uh, the oil and gas industry is investing an enormous amount. Our calculation at Wood Mackenzie is that the upstream sector of the oil and gas industry alone is going to invest something like $500 billion this year. So, as I say, it's clear there's an enormous amount of capital flowing. It is certainly the case that um, not every project is financeable. And if you have um, projects maybe that are higher risk, um, you may find difficulties in getting financing for those. If you have projects that don't have um, a clear story about the energy transition and a route towards lower carbon, that's also a problem. And certainly we've seen examples of that cropping up in many places around the world. But overall, the position is still, the capital is there, the oil and gas industry can get financing. And, and, and Thomas, just to bring your thoughts in, what do you think the the those kind of traditional sort of oil and gas uh, you know interests can do to, to to be able to kind of continue accessing finance? Well, look, I think that the traditional energy industry plays uh, an incredibly important role in the future of our energy systems, um, among other reasons because of the massive base of expertise and history of innovation in the traditional energy industry that can be brought to bear uh, in the energy transition. And I think we're increasingly seeing that. Uh, you know, you see not only direct investment from uh, you know traditional energy players into new areas of energy transition, but also increasing overlap in you know in areas that are essential for the energy transition, like carbon capture, utilization, and storage, or even things like direct lithium extraction. So I think you know the the traditional energy industry not only has the potential to play a huge role in both investing in and driving uh, sort of the innovation ecosystem around energy transition. But I think we're, all, we're already and increasingly seeing that come to pass. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that 
it's important to remember when we talk about the transition to low carbon energy, it is a transition. And that means we're not going to switch off demand for oil and gas tomorrow or next year or even in the next decade. That demand is going to continue for some time to come. If we're on a path towards lower emissions, then very likely over time, demand for oil and then probably demand for gas after that is going to decline. But even so, it's going to remain very substantial and the industry is going to need further investment to meet that continuing ongoing demand. And if we can't meet that demand, then that's going to cause real problems for the energy transition. The thing that uh, is more fatal than anything else to energy policy is if you're perceived as a government to be unable to meet demand for energy. And so if we try to drive the energy transition in directions that essentially restrict supply while demand continues to grow, that's going to cause enormous problems. That's actually going to put a break on the energy transition, stop it making progress the way we'd want it to. And so that's the other thing to be borne in mind is, as I say, it's a transition during that transitional period continued investment into oil and gas will be needed. Ed, you've brought up some really interesting ideas there about that kind of question around, you know, challenges and, and, and sort of potential shortages. And I think we've seen some of that sort of narrative play out in Europe in the last year following uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that there are different availabilities of finance in different geographic regions? Certainly, I think it's very clear that there's a pretty sharp divide essentially between what you might call, broadly speaking, the developed world and what you might call emerging market economies and developing countries. And I do think one of the big issues that really needs to be addressed when you think about energy policy on a global scale, when you think about one of the real contributions that the COP process and COP28 uh, coming up in Dubai this year, one of the real contributions that conference could make is in working out ways to direct capital towards emerging market economies and developing countries more efficiently for investment in all aspects of their energy sectors, because as I say, they have ongoing demands for energy and, of course, growing demands for energy that are going to need to be met in the future. But also they have, in particular, growing demand for low-carbon energy, and that's going to be uh, increasingly important, and it's vital on a global scale in terms of addressing climate change. And so, as I say, I think it's a real priority to think about what we can do overall, what both governments of those countries can do, but also what the developed world can do to remove the roadblocks to investment, to think about how to uh, facilitate and support capital flows to make sure that the money is available to finance energy investment. Because as I say, I think at the moment, there's a very broad problem there. It's just not really... Uh, the capital isn't really flowing the way that it should. And Tom's looking at that uh, that kind of question around sort of geographic differences, and I suppose that sort of policy uh, appetite, which I think obviously kind of feeds into that sort of uh, financial uh, desire or ability to, to to sort of support the energy sector. Do you think that that there are new sources of of, of financing that, that that companies should be thinking about? Obviously, I mean, I I I kind of keep on seeing sort of you know net zero pledges from from banks and you know, kind of commitments to not invest in, you know, various sort of sectors. What's your feeling about the sort of new areas of, of, of financing? Look, I think it's a very important point. And, and I think Ed made a great point. Um, you know, the, the, the energy transition is not monolithic. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, every year at the, at the G20, in, if you look at the energy and environment ministers communicate, it refers to energy transitions. And there's always a, a, an important recognition that, you um, 
you know, within different national circumstances, energy transitions will play out in different ways. And that means investing in sort of different projects at different stages in different parts of the ecosystem. And that can mean, you know, different types of financing. And so, you know, when I look across the sort of the universe of, um, of energy investment, you know, on the one hand, there's sort of energy venture, and certainly in in the United States and in in uh, in developed markets, that's a very active and well-funded area. There are a lot of uh, well-funded uh, players who invest in early-stage energy venture, um, and increasingly, and on the back of the IRA, there's a lot of investment in um, in sort of energy growth in, in in sort of proven technologies that are still high return, but uh, require quite a bit of capital investment. Uh, and then you have, you know, sort of a pool of lower return, but more stable energy transition infrastructure investment. And all three of these categories, you know, draw on different pockets of capital, um, but they're also assessed differently depending on, on the geography. And so as Ed noted, uh, certainly in developed markets, uh, those pools of capital are all quite mature, but in the global south, we are doing a much uh, poorer job of, of funding the required projects. Um, and, you know, then you, that takes us into a, a broader discussion about the, you know, the role of, of China and, and the Chinese financing ecosystem, which is sort of a world unto itself that, you know, draws more on state-linked banks and financing sources, but it does fill you know, a lot of that void in the in the global south that I think that, you know, multinational uh, multilateral development banks and Western financing sources, you know, would would be better served to pay more attention to. And I think part of what what uh, what needs to accompany that is a focus on sort of what what, what is known as the, you know, the enabling environment, the the policy structures, the regulatory structures the you know in, insurance and and political risk tool toolkits that can be used to give investors comfort um, that their that their capital in in those investments can be stable and and protected. Absolutely, and I do think sometimes it seems to be easier for investors to talk about what they're not going to invest in than the, what they are going to invest in. And you know we seem to have a lot of attention. We seem to have a lot of attention uh, focused on which banks are lending to which oil pipeline that kind of thing. Um, often public campaigns are focused on stopping banks and other investors from investing in particular bits of fossil fuel infrastructure. I think, to be honest, it would actually be much more productive if they started to focus a bit more attention on investments that are not happening but should happen. And on any sensible model of it, you were talking, Edward, earlier about the uh, IRENA numbers, but there's loads of other numbers out there. It's very clear that if the energy transition is anything, it is a huge industrial transformation that requires colossal investment and investing in low carbon energy in general is going to require more capital, more investment than investing in a fossil fuel infrastructure, not least because we have to get rid of a lot of that fossil fuel infrastructure and replace it with low carbon energy. And so all the things that could be done to mobilize capital to, towards low carbon energy investment are incredibly important and i think it's a real shame that they receive much less attention and focus in the public debate and the discourse i mean just to throw in another little kind of factoid um 
if you think about the Paris Agreement's commitment to capital flows of $100 billion a year from essentially rich countries to poor countries to finance the response to climate change, but mostly focused on uh, mitigation and ways of uh, developing a lower carbon energy system. Those flows have never lived up to that pledge of 100 billion a year. They've often been lower. I think the peak year was something like 83 billion in one year. Generally, it's been much less than that. And I think that's a real sign of this fundamental problem the world has had in terms of deploying capital, not just uh, this doesn't have to be all government um, flows of investment. A lot of this could be coming from the private sector, but that hasn't been happening as much as we need it either. And as I say, that's a really fundamental problem with the energy transition and something that when policymakers think about the real priorities for global action and uh, trying to put us on a better path to address climate change, that should be right at the top of their list. And, and just following up on that, you know, I think coming back to the earlier question, it's it's another reason why it's very important to have this sort of inclusive approach in the energy transition conversation um, that, that brings in the traditional energy sector, because a lot of the experience in investing in uh, complex geographies around the world is housed in the traditional energy sector. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder for you know, some uh, Silicon Valley, you know, novel energy technology to go into a, a new area of the global south. They've never, you know, uh, uh, executed in in those countries in those areas. Our our, our big uh, incumbent energy players have a lot of the sort of know how and ability to do that, and so marrying that knowledge and expertise and capital base with sort of new technologies, new innovations. Um, and new players, I think is it's very important to to bring that to the table. And I think, you know, again, that's why the ADAPEC discussion is important because you bring a lot of the right players to the table to let that conversation take place. And I think it's also why I'm encouraged about the conversation at COP this year, because the focus is on, you know, making sure that we have all of the right voices at the table to achieve our common goals. Great, let's take a break and we'll come back to hear more. Visit ADAPEC 2023 from the 2nd to the 5th of October in Abu Dhabi. The world's largest energy exhibition and conference will bring together more than 160,000 attendees, 2,200 exhibitors and 1,600 experts from across the energy ecosystem to explore the game-changing innovations and solutions needed to accelerate decarbonisation and create the energy system of the future today. Visit ADAPEC.com to register now. Ed, I'm not gonna. You know, you 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 brought up that kind of idea around around is enough kind of money going into those kind of uh, renewable energies and, and and hydrogen and things. And it feels like a couple of years ago there was a real buzz around around those areas. And it feels like maybe the sort of the the sort of some of the, some of the realities are sort of starting to, to kind of bear fruit. Seeing some, you know, for instance, offshore wind farms in the US, uh, in the UK, sort of running into some challenges. Seeing things like even you know the sort of the Just Energy Transition Partnership, the kind of you know plans to give billions of dollars to, for instance, South Africa and Indonesia and places, run into some local challenges around quite how they're going to work through those investments. Are the wheels kind of coming off? Is this, this is kind of a growing pains? Growing pains, certainly, yes. I think uh, saying the wheels are coming off would be overstating it. I think one of the things we are getting to grips with is the reality of the energy transition, which is that it is going to be bumpy. It's going to be jagged. It's going to happen in fits and starts. It's going to happen differently, different 
paces in different parts of the world. And people can draw nice kind of smooth uh, straight lines and curved lines on a chart and say, you know, we'll be shifting over to EVs on this schedule and power will be moving away from coal and towards renewables on that schedule and so on. Inevitably, um, that's not going to happen. It's not going to look like that. There will be bumps in the road. There will be obstacles. It may be slower overall than people had hoped. That is certainly true. And so when you look at something like offshore wind, as you say, great example, lots of problems now in offshore wind, largely focused on soaring costs and questions about whether uh, the supply chain is really up to the job of delivering enough offshore wind to meet all the targets that governments around the world have set. Um, That's 100% fixable. And as technology progresses, people uh, learn by doing, costs can be driven down. There are There is definitely progress that can be made. Supply chain capacity can be added in order to achieve much greater levels of installations every year. It's not like these are insoluble problems, but they are real. And for as long as they last, they will be genuine issues. So as I say, does this change my view on where we end up ultimately? No, it doesn't. But does it is it a reminder that there's going to be lumps and bumps along the way? Yes, it certainly is. Does it raise questions about the speed at which we can move to that ultimate destination of a lower carbon, zero carbon net energy system? Yes, it does raise the question. Thomas, I suppose you know we, 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 we you know obviously in the energy industry we tend to look at you know the the energy industry, but obviously it, it's sort of part of a sort of a wider economic system. And I think you know, obviously there are kind of questions around you know the global economy. We've seen interest rates going up. We've seen kind of concerns around, you know, recessions. We've seen, you know, sort of China, China worries. Do you think that these mm, sort of macroeconomic uh, headwinds do they make this energy transition talk harder? Do they do they make do they make it less likely to to, to come through to fruition? Well, it's an important point, and I think that uh, you know what it speaks to is the interplay between you know, economic performance, economic growth, and this complex pathway of energy transitions that, that Ed was just describing. It's a complex sort of multivariable interaction as our economies grow in different ways, as we uh, make different economic policy decision, decisions, it certainly has clear implications for um, you know, how uh, the energy transitions will, will occur. Um, and I think we've seen that certainly, you know, you can see it in in specific markets as uh, as interest rates have have risen quite rapidly. You see things like the effect on residential solar in the United States, which has markedly dipped because uh, you know certain regulatory decisions, but also just because the cost of financing is much higher. So at a time where you know, um, you know, you're you're always looking at the comparable cost of energy coming from the grid versus residential solar. As the cost of money goes up, that this calculus changes. And you know, the quick when you look at the surveys of uh, you know consumers' appreciation of the importance of uh, sort of energy transition-minded decision decision making, it's very clear. But when it directly affects their pocketbooks when they're being asked to pay much higher prices uh, to sort of implement those decisions, the calculus becomes much harder. So, you know, policymakers have to be cognizant that, 
you know, sound, uh, sound economic policy to provide this sort of ballast for the economy um, that's required to implement energy transition policies is really essential. And so policymakers need to be focused on, on making good decisions to continue to drive economic growth that, that's essential to, to, to driving the energy transition. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Just to pick up on uh, your point, Thomas, about uh, interest rates, you know, one of the kind of shorthands used in the industry is that one of the crucial raw materials for renewable energy is money, because obviously a lot of the cost of a project is what happens up front in the construction your um, your fuel costs for uh, for a wind uh, project or a solar project are zero, so your running costs tend to be lower, and, and lots, a lot of the cost is up front, and therefore the cost of the investment financing is really important. And as you were saying, uh, now that cost has risen significantly. That is definitely creating problems for renewables and for some of the sectors of the, the low-carbon energy economy. With hindsight, when you think about that period we had of ultra-low interest rates after the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, uh, it would have been really smart to take the opportunity to borrow up to the eyeballs, invest a lot more capital in renewable energy, nuclear other forms of low-carbon energy then, that would have been a smart move. Hindsight is 2020. We can kick ourselves now. We should have done it. We didn't. It's a shame. Now conditions are different. And as Thomas was saying, in terms of economic management, uh, actually policymakers do have to be more careful. They do have to think about uh, the cost of money, supply constraints, danger of inflationary pressures being built up. That said, I think that we'll see how it plays out. But the strategy of the Biden administration in the US, sometimes uh, popularly referred to as Bidenomics, that's what uh, President Biden likes to call it, but that strategy of trying to develop a domestic manufacturing base, in particular through the very strong tax incentives set up by the Inflation Reduction Act, that does seem to be having some pretty positive results so far in terms of encouraging investment, encouraging, encouraging investment in manufacturing and in uh, energy without apparently at the moment kind of stoking inflationary pressures or causing other problems in the economy. So, as I say, we'll see how it plays out. It's still pretty early days yet, but I think it's an interesting uh, model that other countries around the world, other policymakers will be watching to see how things play out in the US, because certainly I think the initial indications are pretty positive. I think we're about out of time now, so I'm just going to say thank you very much to our guests, Tom and Ed. I've really appreciated your insights today. It's clear that financing is going to play a crucial role in delivering the energy transition, but also that those conversations between industry and the money may be tricky. Energy Voice Out Loud is the weekly podcast from Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. Feel free to sign up to our newsletter for our daily digest and follow along on LinkedIn and Twitter for our expert analysis and insight across the energy sector. You can subscribe to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to tune in. For today, I've been Ed Reed. Thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. 
If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.